Welcome to another episode of Demolition Now, the official podcast of the National Demolition Association. I'm your host, Kevin McKenney, Director of Government Affairs for NDA. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with a mixture of content and analysis of the issues impacting the demolition industry, along with engaging interviews of industry leaders, experts, and analysts that will provide unique perspectives on the industry today. There's a constant stream of external factors driving the industry, whether it be changing business conditions, a disruptive political environment, or rapidly changing demographics and consumer preferences. On this podcast, we'll examine the big issues driving the industry, hopefully in an informative and engaging manner that will keep you coming back. If you have suggestions for topics for future episodes, please email them to me at kmckenney at demolitionassociation.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Demolition Now through iTunes or Stitcher, available in the Google Play Store. On this episode, we will speak with David O'Connor from the Directorate of Standards and Guidance at OSHA's office in Washington, D.C., about the crystalline silica rule, including background, insight on compliance, and what to expect moving forward. Later, we'll dig into the federal government shutdown. We'll go over how we got here, the key issues, and how a resolution could be reached. So stay with us. As you know, OSHA recently published a final rule regarding occupational exposure to respirable crystalline silica in construction. NDA has been following the rule closely and wants to provide the industry with what they need to know about the rule and how to stay in compliance. Here to discuss the silica rule with us is David O'Connor from the Directorate of Standards and Guidance at OSHA's office in Washington, D.C. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Well, it's great to have you and we appreciate you taking the time. I wanted to start with just some background on the silica rule. Can you take us back prior to the rule being proposed and briefly discuss the reasons for the rule? Sure. The silica rule was a long time in coming. Um, OSHA had originally established permissible exposure limits for crystalline silica back in the 70s when the agency was first created, but a lot of information developed over time indicating that exposure to respirable crystalline silica caused some health effects that we weren't aware of previously, such as lung cancer, but also that um, some health effects that we were aware of, such as silicosis, occurred at exposures that were lower than we had anticipated earlier than that. So we began a process really beginning in the late 1990s, uh, beginning with some early development on the rule, consultations with small businesses, examination of the health literature, that led up to the uh, proposed rule that we issued and eventually the final rule that was published in 2016. So we know there are three different forms of silica, but we know that there's one that really we encounter very often in construction. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that and the type of tasks that commonly expose uh, respirable crystalline silica? That is quartz, which is a very common mineral. Um, materials like sand, stone, concrete, and mortar contain quartz. And workers who are performing tasks like cutting, sawing, drilling, grinding, jackhammering, a lot of common demolition tasks are going to be exposed to those very small respirable particles 
that can get deep into the worker's lungs. It's those small particles that we're really concerned about. Sand at the beach is quartz, but the particles that you find in sand at the beach are about 100 times larger than the particles that are capable of getting deep in workers' lungs. It's those uh, particles that are generated from work tasks that cut, grind, crush, drill, quartz materials that um, we're really concerned about. Got it. So the uh, talking a little bit now about the rule in particular, uh, the rule is is detailed and has, has many different aspects to it. Can you provide maybe just a brief overview of the key provisions that, that contractors should know, things like the permissible exposure limits, the record-keeping, medical surveillance, et cetera? The uh, primary purpose of the rule is to limit exposures to workers and thereby protect their health. So we are looking at a permissible exposure limit, a new lower permissible exposure limit uh, that will better protect workers. In addition, there are requirements for exposure assessment, respiratory protection when the uh, methods of limiting exposure are not sufficient to achieve the permissible exposure limit, some restrictions on certain housekeeping methods, requirements for medical surveillance for highly exposed workers, and requirements for training and record keeping. With regard to construction, We heard early on in the process that the approach of setting a permissible exposure limit and leaving leaving it up to employers to figure out how to limit exposures didn't really work well for a lot of construction activities because of the constantly changing environments that a lot of construction employers work in. So what we have in the construction standard is something that's referred to as table one. And what it does is lays out 18 common construction tasks and the controls that are appropriate for those tasks. So, for example, in looking at using jackhammers, one of the entries on table one, the table indicates that there are different controls that would work there, either using wet methods, applying water to keep the dust down, or using a vacuum dust collection system that uh, would collect the dust at the point that it's generated. So the employer who follows table one doesn't need to concern themselves with the PEL, or isn't required to assess exposures. They can simply follow table one, uh, and that we see is the easy route to compliance for most construction employers. And that leads right right into my next uh, question, which was about table one and exposure control methods. And so uh, you, you definitely answered that question there, which is that if employers are fully complying with those exposure control methods in table one, they are exempt from the PEL, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And they are not required to measure employee exposures either. Great. That makes sense. Uh, I'd like to ask you too about written control plans. Uh, what should employers uh, know about written control plans? What do they have to con- describe and, and have in them? And in addition, who specifically can implement a, a, a written control plan? The written exposure control plan is a document that indicates the tasks in the workplace that involve exposure to respirable crystalline silica, as well as the engineering work practice controls and where necessary uh, respiratory protection that's used to limit employee exposures to respirable crystalline silica when performing those tasks. It would also include a description of any housekeeping measures that are used to limit exposures, And in construction, 
any procedures that are used to restrict access to high exposure areas. And that is overseen by what's referred to as a competent person. Uh, the competent person being an individual who has some knowledge of respirable crystal and silica hazards and how to control them. The standard defines that competent person as uh, an individual who's capable of identifying existing and foreseeable respirable crystal and silica hazards in the workplace and has authorization to take prompt corrective measures to eliminate or minimize them. Really someone knowledgeable who's able to take action when necessary to ensure that exposures are being properly controlled. That's that's interesting because we actually just did a little bit of uh, looking into the membership of our association and we were uh, very happy to notice that the overwhelming majority of our of our members uh, employ a uh, full-time safety professional. And so let me just think of that because our our members, our industry is definitely concerned with safety and whatnot. And, and I know that that answer that you gave on on that topic will be will be one that they they value. I wanted to ask uh, another quick question on on table one. I noticed that in the uh, regulatory agenda from last fall that OSHA would be looking to publish a request for information on uh, table one. Is do you know anything about if OSHA is moving forward with that, or if if not anymore? Can you speak to that? Yes, we are moving forward with that. Uh, the general intent of that request for information is to look at adding additional controls to Table 1 or possibly adding additional tasks as well. We've heard from a number of stakeholders since the rule came out that they would like to see additional control options included on Table 1 uh, and possibly uh, some additional tasks covered. In order to do that, um, OSHA is looking to get input from stakeholders about what they see as appropriate changes to Table 1. And we're also looking for evidence to support those changes because OSHA needs to be able to support uh, any regulatory changes with evidence uh, indicating that uh, with the case of Table 1 changes, that any changes would adequately protect workers. And for, uh, for, for that request for information, that would be uh, something that the public, including demolition contractors, let's say, for example, will be able to weigh in on and uh, provide their perspective on on the way the rule is is working with regard to compliance and table one uh, in that in that industry. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And we anticipate that that um, request for information will be published sometime early in 2019. So it shouldn't be far off. Great. That sounds that sounds like a great uh, opportunity for. Uh, for our industry and and for our members to uh, to weigh in with their industry expertise on that, they're always looking for ways to provide that that input and assistance. So uh, we're looking forward to that for sure. Can you, you also uh, speak just a little bit to where employers and those uh, industry those in the industry can get some additional information about the silica rule and and making sure that they're staying in compliance. So if there's any resources on the web, if there's people at OSHA that they can contact for some questions. Can you speak to what kind of resources that are out there for the industry to look at and, and consult if they need to ask some questions? Yes, absolutely. OSHA has a website at osha.gov silica, which serves as a hub for the resources that we have available. But there are a lot of things there that um, are potentially useful to contractors. A document that would be particularly useful to many employers, I think, would be the small entity compliance guide that we have for construction. 
And what that document does is uh, takes the provisions of the rule and explains them in what we hope is a very user-friendly format, explaining uh, those provisions in language that uh, is a bit easier to follow than the text of the standard itself, um, and explaining um, and interpreting a number of the provisions. Uh, in addition to that, we have sets of frequently asked questions, uh, including a set for the construction standard. We have videos um, showing some of the table one tasks, also uh, videos that can be used for training purposes. We have fact sheets on the standard and on the various table one tasks. We have a PowerPoint template that employers can adapt for training purposes. And also wanted to mention OSHA's consultation programs. A lot of uh, employers aren't familiar with those, but um, uh, OSHA's consultation program can be uh, very helpful. And what that is, is a program that offers free confidential occupational safety and health services, particularly aimed at small and medium-sized businesses. And they're operated in all the states, and they're separate from enforcement. They don't result in penalties or citations. Uh, and the, con uh, the consultants from state agencies or universities will work with employers to identify hazards and address those hazards. So there's information uh, on the consultation program on OSHA's website as well. Well, that's great information. And I can definitely agree that, that uh, the compliance guide that you mentioned on the rule is, is particularly helpful. We uh, sent that around to our members uh, a little while ago, and we we definitely got some positive feedback. So that was uh, a, well, a much appreciated uh, compliance guide from OSHA there. And then in addition, it's uh, it's worth noting too that we're going to see some more activity with uh, with our work with OSHA. We've been talking with OSHA for let's see a number of months now about the possibility of reentering an alliance with OSHA and really just increasing our ability to work together and making sure that our members are able to provide input when necessary on demolition specific tasks. And, you know, sometimes it can be a unique industry. It's in construction, but sometimes the work is, is very, very specific and uh, unique. And so uh, we're very excited about the opportunity to work with OSHA more uh, as we move forward. So that was all the questions uh, that I had, David, do you have anything you'd like to add before we, before we close? No, I don't think I do. All right. Well, David, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I think it was very insightful, and I think our, our industry will be well served by the information you gave us. So thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Join the National Demolition Association for the latest news information necessary to be leaders in environmental stewardship, safety, education, professional competency, and government advocacy Grow your business and educate your employees with access to NDA training, publication, and online resources. Improve your safety practices with our cutting-edge safety program featuring best practices, tools, and online training. NDA offers members world-class training opportunities for foremen, field superintendents, project managers, and anyone interested in advancing their career in the demolition industry. Get serious discounts on expenses, services you use every day, including discounts on human resources management and strategic workforce planning. Support the industry and influence regulations through a comprehensive public relations program designed to educate government officials and general public on the demolition industry and participate in exclusive networking opportunities and exchange best practices at NDA events. To learn more on how membership 
can help you win work and improve your bottom line, visit demolitionassociation.com or email at info at demolitionassociation.com. The federal government shutdown has been dominating headlines over the past month. Let's dig into a little bit about the shutdown. We'll get into background on congressional appropriations, what the issues are for this shutdown, who's to blame, and how we have a resolution moving forward. Well, on December 22nd, the federal government, quote, shut down. This was because President Trump and the Democrats in Congress could not reach an agreement on keeping the government funded because of a border security measure that President Trump is requesting, which we'll get into a little bit more detail later. So on December 22nd, when the fund, current funding ran out, those departments within the government shut down. In terms of congressional appropriations, the way the process works is that Congress passes appropriations bills for each agency. For example, the Environmental Protection Agency is funded by the Interior and Environment Bill, while the Department of Energy is funded by the Energy and Water Bill. These bills are sent to the president after congressional passage for him to sign. Once he signs them, the federal government has the authorization to spend money from the Treasury. Typically, these bills are passed for a fiscal year. So fiscal 18 would have appropriations bills and fiscal 19 would have appropriations bills. This is how Congress did it for a number of years up until about a decade ago. Because of some of the rules in the Senate, it is next to impossible to pass appropriations bills that can get to the 60 vote threshold required for congressional passage in the Senate. As a result, Congress has mostly been passing short-term continuing resolutions. These are short-term funding bills that are just required to sort of keep the lights on at the federal government. They are not appropriations in the traditional sense, but they keep the federal government workers paid and they keep the lights on in all the federal buildings. So what's causing the current government shutdown? The main issue for the current government shutdown is President Trump's $5.7 billion request for a wall on our southern border. President Trump has asked Congress to include this line item in an appropriation bill that would be sent to him. The Democrats, led by newly elected House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and who now control the House of Representatives, have rejected President Trump's call for a border wall. They view this as ineffective and a waste of money. They also see it as a vanity project left over from his 2016 campaign for president. The latest news is that the Democrats remain unwilling to give him this funding. President Trump has made the case that this funding is absolutely critical. This wall would address issues related to the importation of drugs into the United States to prevent human trafficking, to stop illegal immigration, and a variety of other beneficial measures to keep the country safe. So who's ultimately to blame for the shutdown? Depending on which channel you watch or newspaper you read, you'll hear different interpretations. This largely depends on what side of the political spectrum you fall. If you're a Democrat, the answer is simple. President Trump is responsible for this shutdown. His request for a border wall is unreasonable and he is holding federal workers hostage. This would be the argument of the Democrats. 
if you're a Republican, you would be blaming Speaker Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, who is the minority leader of the Senate, and congressional Democrats who remain unwilling to give President Trump a very, very small amount of money for something that would do a tremendous amount of good. $5.7 billion is a very, very small fraction of the federal budget. And they see their unwillingness of the Democrats as just simply a personal vendetta against President Trump. History will ultimately have to shake out who's going to shoulder the blame for the shutdown. Some of that will largely depend on who blinks first. While they are currently at a very real stalemate related to this issue, at some point, someone is going to blink. The effects of the shutdown will likely continue. For example, airport security screeners could stop working since they are not getting paid. Meat inspections could become a problem. There are certain effects on daily life and on the economy that can materialize. So who shoulders this blame is ultimately going to be a matter of who decides to blink first. If the Democrats were to give in and give President Trump his $5.7 billion or something close to it, the Democratic Party and their base will be very, very unhappy with what happens. On the other hand, if President Trump blinks and agrees to fund the government without the $5.7 billion border wall allocation, the base who supported President Trump in 2016 and many of the Republicans who support his agenda will be very, very unhappy. It's ultimately going to be a matter of time before that happens. Although it could go even a month, two months before there's a resolution agreed to. We'll have to keep you informed on how the government shutdown continues and when there's a resolution. Thanks very much to our listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Demolition Now through iTunes or Stitcher, available in the Google Play Store. You can also listen to us online through the NDA website. Goodbye for now until the next episode of Demolition Now.